Welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church, Kannapolis, North Carolina. As senior pastor, Dean Hunter shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. Ephesians chapter 2 is a very familiar passage of scripture to people who have been in church for any amount of time. Especially verse eight and verse nine. Paul is writing this book, this letter, to a church in a real city, a real place called Ephesus. This is one of Paul's several, what we call prison epistles, written while he was in prison. Before we read, I want to acknowledge or at least give some context to the reality that when Paul wrote prison epistles or many of his letters, many times he would have specific things in mind. Sometimes he would write in generalities. I believe when Joe preached uh, the last, uh, last whenever, Sunday night, he mentioned some of the, the generalities that he would preach generally and cover a lot of ground. Ephesians is a more distinct, specific, topical letter. And Paul writes to this church, and within Ephesians, we find some what seems to be the core or the foundation of what it means to really be a Christian, to really be born Again, I think it's fair to say, you don't have to amen, just look like you agree, it'd be great, that we live in not only a world or a country or a culture, but even in the American church, where if we're honest, there's a lot of people that don't seem to really understand what it means to be Christian. And I think, quite honestly, there are some really born-again Christians that have not yet got to the place in discipleship or in their, their spiritual growth that they understand the value of their salvation, understand the, the privilege, if you will, of being saved. They understand truly what it means to be saved. Now, I think there's a fine line, but I'm not the judge. But there seems to be too many Christians or professing Christians who don't seem to fully understand their place, their position in this world. Yeah, they, you turn on the news for a few minutes and you can get a little discouraged. You can start to wonder if the people who are leading this thing know what's going on. You can... Go fill up your car and see Bidenomics at work. <laughs> you can make a mistake and slip and see your stock portfolio and say, what's going on? But as a true believer, we understand there's far more to this life than those material things. Even when we see, and so this might be too heavy for some of us, but I'll get through it. We'll, we'll work on this together. Even when we see ships and planes maneuvering strategically with nuclear-empowered countries taunting America. I just broke some news to some of you. We should be disturbed about it as a citizen of America. We should make sure our ammo is fresh. <laughs> but it should not cause us to lose hope. It should not cause us to walk around with our heads down, woe is me, what in the world is going on? Because we understand this world is not our home. We are just pilgrims passing through. Life is a few days and full of troubles. It's like a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. And for the child of God, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Amen. Yes. 
And so we don't let these things burden us and bog us down. Surely, if there's anybody that ought to have joy and happiness and walk around with a smile on their face and tell a clean joke every now and then, it ought to be a child of God. That's understanding what being born again looks like. And Paul drills down and says, let me talk about your salvation. Let me tell you believers what really happened. So that we, when we leave Central Baptist Church today and walk out as a Christian, if that's your situation, you, you, you're like, I understand, man, God is good. God loved me. God extended his grace and mercy to me, a sinner, worthless, headed for hell. Not because I was good enough. Not because I went to church. Not because I wore the right thing to church. Not because I lived in the right, because he loved me and extended his unmerited favor on me. That makes us walk a little different. Makes us talk a little different. Makes us live a little different. Makes us appreciate our salvation a little more. Ephesians chapter two, let's stand as we honor God's word. For context, I'm gonna read verses one through nine, but we're really just gonna sit down on verse eight and nine today. Paul writes to these believers talking about their salvation. There's, if you'll appreciate it, there's a mini sermon in verses one through seven, but I won't preach it unless you look like you want it. So everybody let's look real stoic, look down. And you, believers, has he quickened, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sin. Every, you would be amazed at the people who are keeping their heads down at the scriptures right now. Don't you dare make eye contact. Don't you look at him. Don't you look like you're confused. Don't look like you enjoy it. We were dead, but now we're alive. And just on a side note, 20 second time out. When we come to church, this ain't Whitley's. We're alive. We're not dead. We're alive. That don't mean we put on a show. There's no smoke. There's no lasers, right? We got some strobe lights every now and then, but that's not, not on purpose. <laughs> we ought to be alive. Wherein in times past you walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's not someone we want to serve, the spirit that works in, works in children of disobedience, among whom also we also had our conversation in times past, the lust of the flesh, for fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature, you were believer before you were a believer, when you were dead, before you were alive, you were children of wrath. even as others, but God, who is rich in mercy. Y'all know what mercy is, right? It's a little different than grace, but they're, they're first cousins. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, and that's part of the sermon, but mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Every parent extended a little mercy at times. But God, who is rich, he's got a lot of it. In mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, children of wrath, he quickened us together with Christ. He made us alive with Christ. And then he throws in parenthetically where he's going. By grace are you saved. A little sneak preview. And he's raised us up together and made us sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We don't feel like we're in heavenly places down here, but we are sitting with Christ in heavenly places. What does that mean? Here's a good, here's a good um, explanation. It's like we're already there. The early church knew that, by the way. They believed it. Why were they unashamed and unafraid to die for the very faith? They knew I'm sitting in heavenly places. The best thing you can do is kill me. 
that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. All that's the context for this. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works, because then some of you would go bragging about it. That's the RNV. Father, thank you for your word. I pray today that every believer in here is not just stirred emotionally, but is stirred spiritually, understanding, being reminded of what a great gift of salvation we have been given. And I pray seriously, there's a person in this room, and no doubt in a crowd this size, there are some people who might be talking the talk. Maybe they've been in church a long, long time. Maybe they've even told people they're saved. But deep down in the recesses of their heart, they know, and they know you know, that they've never, by faith, called on your son Jesus to restore their relationship with you. And I pray today, not my words, but your word, your Holy Spirit convicts their hearts, gives them the boldness and courage to make Jesus your son, Lord of their life. We ask this in his name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. We've been through what turned into a faith series since Easter. Didn't plan it in my New Year's resolution, but it happened that way. Today, I think we're gonna end with the idea or the topic of saving faith. We've talked about faith that uh, is tested. We've talked about faith that finishes. We've talked about faith that fights. Talked about a legacy or leaving a legacy of faith. Last week we talked about working faith, a faith that shows itself by works for God. If there is a more important or most important faith, not sure that's biblically sound, certainly it's saving faith. As I prepared this week and over-prepared and overthought and over-analyzed and broke down what I'd already written and rewrote stuff, and that's how it works, at least in my maze of a mind. My desire is to make this text practical, not to overburden someone with, you know, fancy, flowery, biblical terminology but for us to understand what it means to have saving faith. People throw around the word faith a lot, even in the church. Um, Don't want to be too pop culture, but I hate when that clip comes off. That just ruins my day. Someone might say, you just got to have faith. Just have faith. And quite honestly, for a lost world, an unchurched world, and maybe for many in the church, really what would help that statement is to understand what God's definition of faith is. It's, and you've heard me say this, you've heard others potentially say this, it's not a, a hope so, it's not a um, say a prayer, light a candle, and just hope it happens. That's not what faith is in Scripture. If you're an old school concordance guy and look at the Hebrew and the Greek and all the fun things like that, you'll see that nearly 90% of the time the word faith that's used all throughout the New Testament, it's the same Greek word. It's not like you twist it. It's also used for the word believe. Whosoever believes, whosoever has faith, now, Paul said, in, or maybe Paul, but the writer of Hebrews said, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews also gives us a definition of faith. Faith is the subject of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But when we look at that word, faith, in the Greek, 
I want you to hear what it, what it means, what God was saying, and, and by the way, everybody can act like we're a Greek scholar. I took a semester that qualifies me as that. And um, anyway, bless those who decide to do that for five semesters to, I don't know, and want to just read a Greek Bible. I don't, I don't, I didn't enjoy that, but Greek is a very uh, colorful language. You can use one word and it's very descriptive. So the word faith that's used here in the New Testament and here in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it's the same word that we would get like a conviction or persuasion, but it's deeper than that. It's more defined than that. It's really a word that means that you are reliant upon. You rely on something. I think about that and I think of how some in the secular world uh, wanna say that the church, Christians, uh, use their faith as a crutch. And that's kinda like derogatory, it's like I don't like that. But at the same time, if we really have faith, we are leaning on it. It is what's holding us up. It's been used as a criticism. But no, we are, we are being held by our faith because we are relying on what we believe to be true. But the definition goes on. And this is what we must understand. It's this assent or agreement to evidence or authority. Now you gotta, if you're gonna stay awake for 30 seconds, this is, you gotta stay awake for this or you'll miss everything I say and go out and say I was preaching heresy. It didn't say the definition is not getting evidence and believing. It's relying on something as if you've been proven or it's been proven or believing as it's evidenced. It means you believe it as if you've had evidence, but it is not having evidence. I'm gonna tell you this, I, I know a few people. There's not enough evidence in the world of Christianity to get anybody to believe it. Let me back up, because some of you didn't agree with that or you didn't hear it right. There is a lot of evidence, archaeological, the Word of God we'll get to, the Holy Land. That's a pretty good piece of evidence right there when you can fly and go over there and sit down and walk and see it. It's like, I've never been to Narnia. Where's that all at? Where's that? Is that a real place? It probably is. I'm not a reader when it comes to that fiction, devil worshiping stuff. I'm, I'm kidding. That was a joke. <laughs> it's believing something as evidence, not having evidence and believing something. It is a full reliance upon. It's a. This is a practical. This is what I believe. I don't need your proof. It also means this. This is what I believe, and nothing you can say will make me not believe it. Now, to the, to the PhDs of the world, the anti-Christ PhDs of the world, um, you're just a little knuckle-dragging peon to do such a thing. That's how we're viewed by some. Thank God there are some PhDs and some smart people who still have faith. Amen. Dr. Ken Ham is one of them. And thank God for Ken Ham and the Ark and the Creation Museum and all the stuff he does and his ministry does. That's what faith is. It's the assent to evidence or authority. I'm getting ahead of myself. I can't touch the Bible again or it'll happen. It's not about the amount of faith, it's about the object of our faith. The writer of Hebrews said, Jesus, looking to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. So it's all about him. Now if you're still awake before I start, you gotta hear this because I was really worried about saying this, so I hope you understand it. 
When we talk about saving faith, I often think if we say that to a, an unbeliever who's not been in church, by the way, our society, our culture, our country has changed over the last 20 to 30 years in a way that I think most adults don't really fully understand. I think if someone says it's changed, we'd say amen, that's right, brother. But we don't really understand the generational change of the unchurched. 30 to 50 years ago, there were lost people, just like today, but many of them grew up in church. 50 to 100 years ago, everybody grew up in church, for the most part. Today, we are living in right smack dab in the middle of a community and a generation to where there's a generation of people who have never stepped foot in a church. And I'm not talking about walk down the streets and find five of them. I'm talking about walk down the streets of Kannapolis and find 5,000 of them. I'm talking about going to the public schools to where your children and my children go and 50 years ago, let's, let's get in my lifetime, 25 years ago, there might have been a Bible story read, even in the public school. And if you had someone who wasn't of the Christian faith, even professing, it was like weird, right? I remember those days. It wasn't, it wasn't politically correct, but I remember finding out that there was a Jehovah's Witness in my classroom. It was like, what? Where did he come from? And to this day, I don't know why a witness of Jehovah doesn't celebrate his birth. But anyway, we would have Christmas parties and he would sit back there in the back. Today, you get arrested for a teacher doing that. How dare you put him in the back? What are they like, what's he doing back there? I oh, Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> the good old days. I'm just kidding. That's not nice. We shouldn't do that to people. So what we should do is just not celebrate Christmas. Well, that's what we did so that no one's offended. Why? Because culture changed, generations changed. And it's not only one Jehovah's Witness, there's 10 in there, and there's a Muslim, and there's a Buddhist, and there's a few handful of church-going Christians. There's people that your kids go to school with. There's friends of yours who have children. There's friends of yours who have never stepped foot in a Bible-believing church, and they're young adults. Used to not be the case. So when I say what I'm about to say, I want us to be clear. We are saved by grace through faith. But the question that we ask is, you know, do you have faith? And here's a legitimate response. Faith in what? Faith in what? What would you answer? How would you answer? Today, you ask a, a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old who's never stepped foot in a church, are you saved? And they have no idea what you're talking about. That's hard for most of us VBS champions to believe. But they have no idea. And God forbid you say, hey, you ever been born again? I love born again. Jesus used born again. Like, that's a good, good one-liner. Hey, you ever been born again? And then you can pull the Nicodemus on them. What in the world does that mean? Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. Write that down quick, right? And then explain it. You must be born again. People don't know what that means. How about this? Hey, brother, you have been washed in the blood of the lamb? We know what that means. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's probably not your pickup line for evangelism on the streets. Not today. So when we say saving faith, here's the here's question. Faith in what? And I want to give us some practical answers to what saving faith is, understanding that it's by grace through faith alone, not of works, lest any man should boast. So I've, I've used this, uh, and the terminology I'm using is saving faith is predicated on three types of faith, or three subjects of faith, all right? Am I, you theologians, am I still good? Y'all understand? Some of you are like, let's see where he goes. I'm, I'm taking note. First, I want us to say that faith in the word of God is essential to saving faith. 
Now you'll see where I'm going. Now you can relax a little, okay. I looked at my four theologians. Who are they? You want to know, don't you? I looked at them often to see how they're responding and whether I should veer left or right. Is he kidding? No, maybe. Faith in the word of God. The message of the gospel is revealed to the world through the word of God. So faith in the word of God is essential to saving faith. Why? The message of the gospel comes from the word of God. If, he's, if, if, if this catches you off guard, I'm, I'm, I hope it doesn't, but the, the verses I read earlier came from the Bible, okay? So how would that even be logical to believe Ephesians 2, 8, 9 if you didn't believe the word of God? So faith in the word of God. Now here, this is, I gotta speed through this. This book, and I'm gonna go somewhere with this, if I was to flip it left or right, I could get to 2 Timothy 3.16, and most of us know it. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. What does that mean? It's God breathed. God spoke his word into or to fallible men who wrote it under the inspiration of God. Uh, 2 Peter, Peter says it this way. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. Man didn't write it the way he wanted it. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, I've already, I've already created quite a dilemma here. Actually, God has already created quite a dilemma for some people. You gotta believe that. Now, I've been to cave number four, right outside of Qumran where the first um, pottery vase, if you will, of the Dead Sea Scrolls was found. And soon after, cave after cave after cave unveiled a couple thousand year old scrolls that when unrolled and preserved nearly word for word, I, I'm not gonna call out any versions, but nearly word for word, was the same as the book of Isaiah that we read today. This is where my challenge is to continue on and not hang out here a while. There's significant evidence that the word of God that we hold in our hands has been around a long, long time and been trusted a long, long time. There's no book like it. It's the number one selling book forever, but yet it's the most controversial book that's ever been sold. You want to make a stink real quick in a group of people? Bring it to the club and open it up and start reading it and see the reaction. Start talking about it with people that don't believe it. There's something about the word of God. But in order to be saved, you gotta believe the word of God that tells us how to be saved. But yet, Gallup has a poll from last July. And this is the kind of stuff we see regularly. We've seen it, we, people in, in my world that spend time looking at the things I look at, We've seen it start to happen probably for the last 20 years, significantly. But listen to this poll, and I shouldn't have to explain it. I think you if just, the first few words just kind of, they make me chuckle, then they make me mad. The majority of Christians, 58%, say the Bible is the inspired word of God. So why, why are you spending so much time on this first point? And then how many are there? This is why. Did anybody catch what I just said? A professing Christian was asked, do you believe the Bible is the inspired 2 Timothy 3.16 word of God? And 58, did I say 58? Percent said, yeah. 
The answer should be 100%. Yeah. But we've allowed, this is the type of terminology we've allowed in the American church in the last 20 to 50 years. Yeah, I'm a Christian. You better believe it. I happened to watch a video the other day of some lady who I don't really know who she was. I'm assuming she was a, a Hollywood actress and she was on a talk show and I guess she has not lived a life that seems to be very Christian. And the person said, now you're not a Christian, right? And she said, yeah, I'm a Christian. And this secular talk show host, podcaster said, oh, but you don't believe the Bible, do you? This secular lost person understood that this person, by her actions and deeds, probably wasn't a Christian. She shocked him by saying yes, and his next question was, but you don't believe the Bible's true, do you? She said, oh, no. This is the world we live in. Saving faith has to be faith that is belief in or faith in the word of God. Now, to use 2 Timothy 3.16 in the theological world and, and even in the debate world, if you said, well, how do you know the word of God is true? Um, you say, well, 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's called circular reasoning. You don't use something that's written to say that's why it's true. I could write a book and put a lot of my fun stories and fables and fairy tales in it and put a chapter and a verse that said, by the way, all of this is true. That doesn't make it true. Now, as Christians, we believe 2 Timothy 3.16 is true. But here's, here's where I want to kind of help you out and maybe blow your mind. I don't need 2 Timothy 3.16 to believe it's true. It's the Word of God. Now, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells me it's the Word of God. It helps me. It's a good verse to, to rely on. But if God said it, it's true. Y'all know, know the bumper sticker. God said it, I believe it, it's true. It's settled. No, no, God said it, it's true, whether you believe it or not. That's the reality. People like to say they are Christian, but yet deny the word of God as truth. But the word faith means persuasion or conviction to agree to evidence. Here's the reality. The Bible is either all true or it's not true at all. When we have faith in the word of God, we believe what it says. I've got to hurry. I cut a song because I knew I was going to be, I thought I was going to be short. Anyway, so what, if we believe the word of God, what do we believe? I'm going to tell you one of the reasons people don't want to believe the word of God is because the word of God reveals the works of man. I've got verse after verse and not enough minute after minute. The Bible tells us the bad news about man. We like to talk about the good news, the gospel. The good news isn't good unless you know the bad news. The world needs to know the bad news. Because the world will never accept the good news until they know the bad news. They will never understand the need for good news until they understand the reality of bad news. And the bad news is, according to God's word, we're born into sin, separated from God. By Adam and Eve's mess up by their sin, death passed upon all men for all have sinned. If you want the references for note taking, I'll email it to you, but I got to hurry. There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seek after God. That's the word of God. That tells me that every person that's ever been born, every person in this room, even me, was born in sin and needed salvation. The word of God tells us the consequences for sin. The wages of sin is death. Separation from God. Just like Adam and Eve. In the day you eat thereof you shall surely die. They begin to die physically. And they were separated from God in the garden. And when man is born. He or she is separated from God. The Bible says we are enemies of God. There's some lost people who say well I don't hate God but you're an enemy of him if you're born and you're lost. And if you're born and you've never been saved, you're lost. You're an, en you're an enemy of God according to the word of God. 
So in order to, to be saved by the faith it takes to save, we gotta have faith that the word of God is the, is the answer. And people don't wanna know that. People don't wanna hear that. I know I pick on some of your favorite pastors sometime, and I know, I know it, you know, I'm sorry, kinda. But your good buddy Joel, many times has said this, many times has said this, you can Google it, you can YouTube it, wait till after church. And he says this, and this is why he writes some of his books. I think he believes some of this garbage. He says, I've met a lot of people, I've got the quote up here. He says, I've met a lot of people in my life, thousands of people, and I am convinced, these are are his words, that 99.9% of people are good. He goes on to say, by the way, he doesn't hang out with the same people I hang out, but (laughs) 99.9% of the people are good. He goes on to say, they have a good heart, but they make bad choices. That's a setup for a good book, right? 99%, 99 99.9, he goes on, are good people, they have a good heart, they just make bad choices. The Bible says there's none who seek after God. The Bible says in Jeremiah, the heart of man is deceitful among all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But this cat's met 99.9% of everybody on the planet and they're good. Am I saying Joel Osteen doesn't believe the Bible? Can you do math? How many hundreds of thousands of people is he potentially sending the wrong direction, believing a lie? A couple of you are asleep, so I gotta go to point number two. Saving faith is predicated in faith in the word of God and then faith in the work of God. The same Bible that tells us the bad news And the work of man tells us the good news of the work of God. And here's where the text is. You were waiting, here we are. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. You ever ask anybody if they're saved? We covered this a second ago. What does that mean? The word saved here, for by grace are you saved through faith, is the word to be delivered, to be protected, to be made whole. And Paul says, for by grace are you saved, delivered, made whole. Delivered and protected from an eternal separation from God in hell. Being saved is removing the eternal consequences of sin and making you whole in Christ, to make whole. And Paul makes it clear in verse 8, don't miss this, that salvation The salvation of any person is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Now most Bible students understand what I'm about to say, but I think it's important for us to continue to highlight it. The work of God in salvation is a gift from God. Paul said in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God's work of salvation, according to Ephesians 2, 8, includes, listen, the gift of grace and the gift of faith. You gotta understand the language to understand the truth of that. So let's look at gift of grace, the gift of grace. The word grace here is very important. We've heard different um, phrases or definitions all of our life. Probably the the go-to theological definition is the unmerited favor of God. I, I taught ninth and 10th grade Bible, I was a youth pastor and This always kind of helped, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. We sang about it, he took our place. 
the substitutionary death of Jesus, when he took my place and your place on the cross and paid my sin debt, died my death, so I might be made his righteousness. Unmerited, undeserving. One of the greatest pictures in my mind of the unmerited favor of God, and it, I don't really have a verse to put my finger on it, but it is the soldier's who were responsible for killing him. He was dying for them. Just like he was dying for you. For the criminal who's in jail right now. For the worst crimes imaginable. God sent Jesus to die for them. Just like he sent Jesus to die for you and to die for me. Unmerited, undeserving, grace, or favor of God. This verse teaches us that the grace of God is initiated and given by God alone. Paul, I think, had a good understanding of this unmerited favor of God. He hated the church, he persecuted the church. He tried to destroy the new church in the New Testament, the beginning church. He was personally responsible for imprisoning believers, personally responsible for overseeing the death of believers. But yet, God, in grace and mercy, saved Paul, called him to salvation and called him to service. He was the antithesis of the church. He was the enemy of God. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus asked Saul, that's Paul, by the way, for anybody who didn't know that, that's all right. It's Paul with an S. Face to face, why are you persecuting me? But yet, in grace, unmerited favor, God says, I've called you to be a witness, to be a preacher of the gospel. Anybody catching that? He didn't go catch the guy that was winning all the awards in Bible school. Now he could have, and he called some of them too. Paul understood this. And he's writing this letter, and he's explaining to the church, those believers, do you understand saving faith? Do you understand that it's God's grace, and God alone is responsible for extending this grace to you? He said in Romans 3, 23 through 35, not only of all sin and come short of God's glory, but being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who he set forth to be a propitiation, to pay the price through faith in his blood. In Romans chapter five, Paul says in verse eight, but God commended his love toward us while we were yet sinners. You think Paul, you think Paul knew a little bit about that? While I was a sinner, Christ died for me. How about Romans 5, verses 19 through 21? Paul explains to the church there in Rome, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, talking about Adam. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous, the second Adam, Jesus. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace much more abounds. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, 
there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that's greater than all our sin. The unmerited favor of God. Not only the gift of grace, but quickly the gift of faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. The biblical definition should make this explanation clear. Make it simple. No human, no depraved human with this flesh still on their body is capable of believing unto faith. Y'all with me? You got to understand this. Now, I've got skepticism running through my DNA, but all of us are born with a little touch of it. Prove it to me. Show me. I don't believe you. Now, I'm going to tell you something, and this is going to sound a little prophetic and a, a little apologetic and a little eschatological. Some, some of you going to be saying, here he goes. Get ready. I believe we have an enemy. It's 10 till, and amen would help right now. I believe we have an enemy. The Bible tells me the church has an enemy. And he's not an idiot. He's not God, but he's not an idiot. And I'm convinced, I am convinced as much as I'm standing here sweating, that one of the strategies of the enemy of the church is to make us doubt everything. You say, you tying politics and stuff together? I'm saying anybody with a half a brain and eyes to see can watch and see, not just in America, but around the world, we are being conditioned to doubt everything. And we're becoming more and more of a prove-it-to-me people. And what is that doing for the gospel and for the message of the gospel and the word of God? It's leading people, conditioning people to doubt more and more and more that this is true. Now, let me, let me, let me put a little note here. I better not affect the Christians because true believers don't need proof. I know, I know that sounds so silly. And there's some brilliant person saying, that guy is a blooming idiot. But what makes this understandable is, it's not my faith, it's God's gift of faith that he gave me to believe it. Did you make that up? No, that's what the verse says. If you read it right and you understand it, the gift of God is not just grace. The gift of God is grace through faith. It's the gift of faith and it's the gift of grace. God gave you the ability or the amount of faith to believe in the grace of God, to believe the gospel. Think about it. Let's just think practically for a second. This is a pretty unbelievable book. Somebody, somebody didn't know if they should amen or not. I was like, is that a trick? Is that a trick? Water in the wine, split the Red Sea, dry ground, fourth man in the fire, didn't even smell like smoke. They just bragging now. Den of lions. Y'all like the picture where Daniel's head's on the lion? That's not biblical, but, you know, it sounds good, right? He's like petting one. He's got his head on the other, and he's feeding them pork chop. It's kind of an unbelievable book. Listen to me. Listen to me. I'm going to go back to this statement of a Christian who says they don't believe the Word of God. Now, let's 
I'm pretty practical most times. People say, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe all of it. Matter of fact, that stat goes on in, in Gallup to say they believe a lot of it's kind of um, fairy tale. They believe some of it's just pictures. Some of, you know, everybody tries to rationalize why it's not true. How could you not believe in one of these unbelievable miracles, but yet believe in the greatest, most powerful miracle that's ever taken place on the planet, which is the resurrection of Jesus? which is how you are saved. I think it's fair to say, now there's some people that were like, well, as long as you believe in the resurrection, you don't really have to believe in water to wine. That's an illogical, foolish statement to make. You can do magic to make it look like water to wine. But to raise from the dead and to appear to 500 people and hang out and do some more miracles and people touch him and then float off into heaven? I believe that one. No, the reality is they don't believe that one any more than they believe Daniel and the lions then. So they're not believers. They're not believers. You don't believe the word of God, you're not saved. That sounded really old-fashioned and old-fogey grandpa, didn't it? But I'm gonna stick with that one. It's either all true or it's not true at all. The greatest miracle that's ever taken place is Jesus dying a sinless death. How about that part? He never sinned. Well, I'm saved, but I just don't know if he, I don't know if I believe that sinless stuff. Guess what? You're not saved. Because his sacrifice would have been pointless if he was sinful. The faith that every person in here has ever had to express faith and trust in the sacrificial death of Jesus for your sins was a gift of faith by grace given to you by God. What does that do for me? He follows it up and says, let me remind you, not of works lest any man should boast. It's not very encouraging. It's not very Joel Osteen-like. You know, God looked down and he saw you were trying your best. You were trying to live your best life. You were, you were trying not to cuss and you were petting puppies and um, planting daisies and God was like, that guy's a good guy. I better save him. No, it was... Nothing you did. As a matter of fact, it's in spite of everything you did do. Not of works, because he knows us. That word boast is the word for glory. If we, if we knew, if we could put our finger on one two-letter, two-verb verse that says we had something to do with it, we would walk around strutting like a peacock, right? No, not of works, lest any man boast. Lest any, lest any man glory. So what do we do? We glory not in us. We glory in the cross. We glory in the Christ of the cross. When we understand theologically how we were saved and really how we were not saved and that it was all him and none of us, all glory goes to God. We believe in the word of God. We believe in the work of God. My desire is that you believe and have faith in the will of God. Saving faith. Now I'll upset some people when I finish this point, but maybe not a lot. So what is the will of God? I believe, based on Scripture, the will of God is 2 Peter 3, 9, that none perish, but all come to repentance. The Bible says that God's not slack concerning his promises as some losers, no, no, that's my word, some people consider slackness. He's not willing that any should perish. That word perish doesn't just mean die. It means to die without hope. 
It means to die eternally without hope. And God's not willing that any perish, but that all come to repentance. What's the will of God? That all come to repentance. Does that mean everybody will be saved? Absolutely not. Does that mean that 100% of the people that say they're saved are saved? Absolutely not. At least 58% based on last year's poll. No, but God's desire, God's will, according to this verse, is that all come to repentance. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to try to offend anybody or, or mix you up. But I don't have two minutes for anybody who would ever tell somebody that you may not be able to be saved. And, and I'm, I'm not going to get into that. But what I'm going to say is this. The Word of God, the God-breathed, perfect, inspired Word of God says that God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Yes, I believe it's all God. It's all up to him. But our job is to reach people with the gospel and to tell him, tell them, hey, God loved the world, that's you, so much that he sent Jesus, his only perfect son, to be a sacrifice to die for your sins. And if you'll believe in him, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you believe in him, trust in him to pay the price, that he paid the price for your sin, he took your place, he died your death so you can live his life. He's not willing for anybody to perish. And you can have everlasting life. So when I preach this message, my third point and final point and go home time is God's will is for you to be saved. You say, well, how do you know? You know, I don't know. I'm, I'm telling you this based on the word of God. He wants you to accept his son as your savior. If you're lost, he knows you're lost. He knows you're separated from him. He knows you're on your way to hell. But his desire, his desire is for the death, the bloodshed on his son to not be in vain. And for whosoever to come to salvation. Does that mean I'm gonna pray and everybody in here is gonna leave saved? Absolutely not. I'd quit and go home if I thought that. That'd be a disappointing life. But do I believe there's some people in this room today, and quite honestly in a lot of church pews all around us, who are not saved, who have never accepted him? Absolutely. Churches are full. Churches are full. Would you stand with me and pray? Father, I pray as honestly as I know how, sincerely as I know how, for your Holy Spirit to be active, to convict hearts right now. No doubt, as the word of God has been read, as it's been preached, there's a few people in this room who know they've never been saved. And I pray that you would give them the faith, the boldness, the courage, to right now call on the name of the Lord. With your heads bowed, I'm going to do something I don't think I ever have done or might not ever do again. Even if it's not physically bowed and your eyes aren't physically closed, I want every person in this room to be in a, a posture of prayer between you and God. things go the way I want them to go, we'll be out of here in just a few minutes. And you'll be off to where your next gathering is, whether it's lunch or nap time or whatever it is. There are very few times when I prepare for a sermon that I am regularly reminded by God, by the Holy Spirit, 
Somebody needs to hear this. And even this morning, having a little talk with Jesus, I was reminded by God, there's somebody going to be at church today that needs to be saved. Now, y'all know me. I don't make this stuff up. I don't do this every Sunday. I don't twist people's arms. It's between you and him. But I'm convinced as much as I'm standing here, I'm convinced as much as it's hot as fire outside that there's some people here that need to be saved. And I can assure you, as we come closer and closer to the day of the Lord, it's going to be more and more difficult for you to make a decision to follow him. It will never be easier to make Jesus Lord of your life. And I'm going to do this. If you're here today, and you've been paying attention, and the Holy Spirit of God has convicted your heart that this is a true book, it's his true word, and that you're born lost, no matter how good you've been, you must, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, be born again. And if you've never done that, I want you to right now, while we're praying, Christians should be praying, shouldn't be thinking about lunch, shouldn't be thinking about what time it is, we should be praying for people to be saved. Myself and our staff and most people here understand what I'm about to say. It's not about a prayer. It's not about a chant. It's about you calling on God right now. See, I've never prayed before in my life. Hey, it's talking to Jesus. It's talking to God. And if you're in that position today and you know you need to be saved and God is speaking to your heart through his Holy Spirit, call on him. Talk to him just the way you would talk to a good friend. Acknowledge him as God. Acknowledge yourself as a sinner. Understanding by the word of God you're lost and you know you're headed for hell. You know you're separated from God. But by faith, believe in Jesus' sacrifice for your sins, that he died on the cross and paid the price, took your place, and acknowledge that. Believe it in your heart that Christ has been raised from the dead. And in the quietness, humility, seriousness of your heart, you confess that Jesus is Lord of your life. You're a believer, you're a disciple of Christ. And I believe, according to scripture, you call on him and you acknowledge who Jesus is and what he did for you, you'll be born again. Your life was changed forever. Your position in Christ is different than it was. You're no longer headed for hell, you're headed for heaven. You're a new creation, old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. That's the Bible. That's a born again believer. If you pray to God today and you made him Lord of your life, I would never in a million years embarrass you, but if you want to come to an altar, I'll come pray with you. One of our staff will come pray with you. We certainly want to put something in your hands, a Bible or something to help you grow. Maybe you're at home watching and you did that. We'd love to hear, not just to put up a number and tell somebody somebody got saved, but to help you grow and walk in your faith. And if you're a little shy about that or embarrassed, I want to ask you to do something. I want you to reach out to me. Reach out to our church. Find me somewhere. I'll be hanging out. Tell a friend, you got saved today. What do I do next? And they're going to say, go talk to the preacher. And we're going to help you. If you're a teenager and that's you, I want you to find our youth pastor, Pastor Justin, who I pointed on the left earlier, but he's over on the right. And tell him, don't you get involved in church? Follow in obedience and be baptized. And Christian, if you're here today, and you know it, you know you're saved. Man, if this book and this letter and this verse does anything, it highlights who God is.
and his love and his grace and his mercy. And it ought to humble us that God would love us enough to send his son to die for us. Not of works, but by his grace and through faith. Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events, and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.